0: Hello, and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Owens. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Iran, its missile development programs, and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the JCPOA. When the JCPOA was signed in 2015, it looked as if the threat from Iran's nuclear weapons program had been curbed, at least for 15 years. And with UNSC resolutions that extended restrictions on Iran's ballistic missile activities, the potential threat posed by Iranian ballistic missiles and missile-related arms trade was thought to have been radically reduced. Enthusiasm lasted until 2018, when then President US Donald Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, calling it, in quotes, a horrible one sided deal that was decaying and rotten at its core. With the deal on life support, we've seen Iran continue to develop its ballistic missile capabilities and diversify its defense relationships, all within a context of further regional destabilization. So, what's next for the JCPOA, and how realistic is it to expect Iran to limit its missile programs in the near future? Joining me today to discuss these issues are John Kuzaniak and Timothy Wright. John is the Research Analyst for Non-Proliferation and Nuclear Policy at the IIS America's Office in Washington, D.C. His research focus lies in Iran and North Korea's nuclear missile programs and arms control. Prior to joining the IIS, John was an editor at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and he holds a master's degree in international affairs from the Georgia Institute of Technology.
1: Hi, Maya. Thanks for having me on.
0: Tim is the Research Analyst and Program Administrator for the Defense and Military Analysis Program at the IISS office in London. He provides administrative support in the implementation of the IISS's Missile Dialogue Initiative and conducts open-source research on strategic and theater-range missile systems for the Military Balance and the Military Balance Plus Online Database. Prior to joining the Institute, Tim worked at Chatham House and the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. He holds an MSc in Security Studies from the University College of London and a BA from the University of Sheffield.
2: Good afternoon, Mayor. Thank you for having me on.
0: Welcome to the show, both. I'd like to start our discussion with the JCPOA and where it stands now. But first, John, can you maybe kick us off with a brief overview of what the deal is and why Trump withdrew from it?
1: So if you remember back to October 2015, that's when the deal was adopted. And the basic bargain was, Iran was going to get sanctions relief in exchange for accepting some restrictions on its nuclear program. Um, And and all sides implemented the deal um, until May 2018, when the Trump administration withdrew. And the reason there were, I think the Trump administration cited a lot of different reasons for withdrawing. Um, Some were reasonable, some were not. Trump complained that the deal paved the way for Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Um, He also complained about the sunset clauses in the deal, the the parts of the deal that would expire after a certain number of years. He complained about uh, Iran's support for other groups in the region and about Iran's missile program.
0: Tim, how did missiles fit into the JCPOA story?
1: Well, so
2: missiles are not explicitly addressed in the JCPOA, um, but in the UN Security Council Resolution 2231, uh, it contains an eight-year restriction on Iranian nuclear-capable ballistic missile activities. Um, So within the annex of uh, Resolution 2231, um, it says, and I quote, Iran is to not to undertake any activity related to ballistic missiles designed to be capable of delivering nuclear weapons, including launches using ballistic missile technology. Um, and these restrictions um, shall apply until October 2023, uh, or until the date in which the IAEA submits a report confirming the uh, the broader conclusion, whichever is earlier.
0: John, where do we stand with the JCPOA today under the Biden administration? How far do you think the Biden administration will go to revive the agreement?
1: The Biden administration says that it wants to return to the agreement. This was a, a campaign promise that Joe Biden made was was to return if Iran returned to its um, commitments under the JCPOA, the Biden administration would also return. Um, So both sides say they want to get back in, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's a question of how it, how it can happen. The U.S. policy has been that Iran should move first. Iran should come back into compliance before the U.S. will lift the sanctions. Um, Realistically speaking, um, or of course, Iran's, Iran's own reply is sort of that the, that the U.S. withdrew first. So the U.S. should get it back into the agreement first. Um, I think realistically, we could expect there to be some sort of phased, synchronized process where both sides simultaneously come back into the deal. And we're actually, this week, the Biden administration said that they're they're working on a proposal that they're going to announce to try and get the ball rolling and try to get things moving. And, and we think that proposal is probably going to involve an offer to lift some sanctions in exchange for Iran's suspending 20% enrichment. Um, So that would kind of be a first step from both sides. You asked how far Biden is willing to go. Um, In theory, if he says he wants to get back into the deal, then that would involve lifting all of the nuclear related sanctions at some point. Um, There's an interesting sort of complication here, though, because there are some poison pill sanctions, sanctions that are not related to the nuclear deal. Um, They're consistent with the JCPOA. But I think Iran would want those other sanctions lifted, too, um, before it would agree to fully comply with the JCPOA again. So there's a little bit of a complication. Um, And it's unclear if the Biden administration would be willing to go above and beyond and, and, and also lift those other sanctions.
0: Do you think with the Biden administration in power that the U.S. is in a better position to make progress on the JCPOA and negotiate with Iran? Or do you think domestic politics in the U.S. are complicating things at the moment?
1: Um, Both. I think, in theory, yes, the U.S. is in a better position to make progress on the JCPOA simply because the Biden administration professes to want to revive it, whereas the Trump administration really did not. The Trump administration wanted something wholly different um, and something that was maybe not always very realistic. Um, But practically speaking, as we've seen in the first few months of, of the Biden administration being in office, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress and the sort of more progressive members of of the democratic party in the us are complaining that the biden administration policy so far looks exactly the same in practice as the trump administration's maximum pressure campaign republicans in the us and even some moderate democrats like senator menendez are making things more complicated for the biden administration and they're because they don't want a return to the big deal. Even Democratic Senator Menendez said, we can't go back to the same JCPOA. We have to have something different. Um, And in fact, it's broader than that. Just about a month ago, at the beginning of March, 140 U.S. lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats, sent a letter to Secretary Blinken urging him to go for a more comprehensive deal. Um, So all these things are are complicating factors in uh, the U.S. position of how it wants to go approach Iran and and talk about um, the JCPOA.
0: I, of course, don't only want to focus on domestic politics in our own countries, but um, the domestic political context in Iran, of course, is equally important to consider here. What movement and debate have you observed within Iran's political scene with regards to JCPOA?
1: I've seen, I, I think two big things are worth mentioning. The first is the bill passed by the Iranian Majlis, or the Parliament, in December. And this mandated that the Rouhani government take some steps that would otherwise be seen as pretty provocative. The bill mandated enrichment up to 20%. It mandated the suspension of the additional additional protocol. Um, And so the Rouhani government could say, well, we have to do this because the majlis passed this law. Um, But it could also be seen as sort of Iran's leveraging uh, sort of tactics for leverage. Um, So that has complicated things because from the U.S. perspective, it looks like Iran is simply trying to gain leverage, and that's um, making the diplomacy aspect more difficult. The second thing to mention is that in June... Uh, president Rouhani's second term comes to an end, um, and he's not eligible to run again for president. So we have a presidential election in Iran coming up. We're going to have a different president in Iran um, no matter what. And Rouhani, this is his signature foreign policy achievement, maybe his signature achievement period for during his eight years in office. He certainly wants to revive this so he can have something to show uh, for those eight years. Um, But there are signs that the hardliners in Iran are trying to prevent a revival of the deal before he leaves office, not because they don't want to revive the deal at all, actually, because the hardliners, if if a hardliner wins the presidency, um, they want credit for getting back into the agreement and getting the sanctions lifted. Um, so so those are just a, a couple of the the complicating factors of Iranian domestic politics
0: and what's their view on the us wanting a uh, a, a stronger and better deal uh, than the JcpoA uh, and what it was
1: um, Iran's position at least for now is they, they really just want the deal they negotiated uh, and signed in 2015 they just want the JcpoA. Um, they've alluded to the idea of the JCPOA being a test. And if the test goes well, it could lead to negotiations on other issues. Um, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif just a week or two ago gave an interview uh, that was published in Politico where he made this exact comment that, but he said the US has failed the test. So sort of signaling that the door is not really open for negotiations on other issues, at least not right now. And it's even if Iran was willing to agree to talk about willing to talk about other issues, it's not clear to me that missiles are one of those issues. Um, Iranians have repeatedly said their missiles are really non-negotiable. But that doesn't necessarily close the door entirely. I mean, it's up for interpretation what it means if you say the missiles are non-negotiable. After all, the Iranians said that enrichment was non-negotiable um, in the 2000s leading up before the, the JCPOA. They said enrichment is non-negotiable. What they meant was they're not going to give up enrichment completely. That didn't mean they wouldn't accept some restrictions on enrichment. So there's there may be some room in there to talk about missiles, um, if, as long as it doesn't mean giving up missiles completely.
0: I, mean, I suppose there's different ways of... Um, of, of- a building on the what the JCPOA was initially negotiated to be, right? You can either broaden its scope um, by including things like missiles, but you could also take a different approach by deepening some of the existing um, aspects of it. For example, uh, in, including more rigorous oversight mechanisms. So, is that an option from the U.S.'s perspective and from the Iranians' perspective?
1: I think it's an option. I think it should be the first option, uh, probably if if the U.S. wants more and wants to build on the JCPOA. To really build on the nuclear restrictions. And that would mean extending some of the sunset clauses and things like that. Of course, that doesn't mean that we can also try to um, have diplomacy related to missiles or or Iran's support for proxy groups. But I think those should be on separate tracks. Mixing all these things into one one big deal is only gonna make it more complicated and, and less likely to really ever get off the ground.
0: Maybe a last question on this before we turn to our discussion on missiles. We've primarily talked about this as a discussion between Iran, the US, and the EU, so uh, EC3 plus plus EU. Um, But of course, Iranian foreign policy hasn't stood still since 2018. And while the US and EU continue to think about a better deal, we've also seen evidence of Iran looking eastwards, such as by signing a deal with China that includes military cooperation. So how should we interpret this move, and how might it influence the negotiating power that the US and Europe have with Iran?
1: Right, so Iran and China just signed a 25-year agreement covering $400 billion in investments, um, as well as some potential military cooperation. Um, The idea for this agreement, though, came back in 2016 uh, when the sanctions were lifting and the the JCPOA was in great shape. So it's not clear how much of this agreement or how much of the investment from China can go ahead under the status quo with with the sanctions in place. And even with the revival of of the nuclear agreement, even if there is a revival, um, I don't think this will drastically reshape the picture um, such that it would cut out the US and Europe and and would cut into their leverage. Um, I think that's always gonna be there. Um, And also, I'll just say, Iran has this, um, they have a slogan that they adopted after the revolution, which is neither east nor west, we're the Islamic Republic. Um, And so I think that um, decision makers in Iran are always thinking about how to balance. um, So they're neither dependent on too much on the east or too much on the west.
0: So, Tim, finally turn back to missiles and and your contribution to our discussion. We've talked a little bit about how missiles fit into the JCPOA and how they're likely to be an ongoing focus for any negotiation between the U.S. and Iran in the future. So what is the status of Iran's missile development program at the moment?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, so I'd say the the bottom line up front is that Iran's ballistic and cruise missile program is extensive. Uh, It's growing Uh, And it continues to gather pace, um, both in qualitative and quantitative developments. Um, So although Iran has plenty of older and accurate missile systems in its inventory, um, such as the Shahab-1, the development of newer missiles, um, for instance, the Amand-1, and guidance and maneuverability uh, improvements to older systems, to some of its uh, more recent variants, such as the uh, Fatah-110, uh, mean that its its missile capabilities um, are, are growing in terms of the numbers, the range, the accuracy, and the survivability. Um, and, you know, this is because Iran's missile uh, ballistic missiles constitute a primary component of its strategic deterrent. Um, it has the largest missile force in the uh, in the region. Uh, this consists of uh, close-range ballistic missiles, short-range ballistic missiles, and medium-range ballistic missiles. Um, the latter of which um, in the Qoram, Qoram Shah, I'm always going to pronounce it incorrectly. Um, I think can potentially reach targets about 2,000 kilometers away. So this places the entire Middle East region and also Southeast Europe. I believe it could strike Athens um, at an absolute push um, within within range of Iranian missiles. Now, you know, the, you, you, of course, we hear you know missiles are closely related, uh, related to the JCPOA, and we often hear about the Iranian threat of missiles. But we have to sort of keep in mind sort of the range as well. You know, Iran does does not have, and you know, it lacks IRBMs and ICBMs. Which could strike targets in europe or you know in the continental united states um so although the us report that um potentially um space launch vehicles that uh, the iranian revolutionary guard are using could as dual use technologies could potentially be used in the manufacture of irbms or icbms in the future um because they're inherently similar um you know they, they don't have that capability um at the moment um and maybe just briefly just on iranian cruise missiles I mean, you know, they're flying under the radar in some ways, you know, literally and and figuratively. And, you know, a lot of international attention focuses on its ballistic missile program. But, you know, within a really short time, um, Iran's cruise missiles are becoming increasingly sophisticated. Um, This all began from them um, illicitly um, purchasing uh, some uh, KH-55 Kent uh, cruise missiles with the warheads removed from uh, illicit Ukrainian sources in the early 2000s and through reverse engineering those. Um, they've developed the uh, the Meshkat Sumar, uh, Hovizer family, um, and with each of those, you can see sort of claimed increases in range and and, gu- and guidance, in um, accuracy, and that that's just simply indicates that their you know propulsion their propulsion is getting better. They're domestically producing a lot of this, of course, because they're under um, under sanctions. I mean, although there probably is some illicit uh, trade going on with uh, some of these components, um, so you you can see there how in a really short period of time that they've been able to develop. Uh, cruise missile capabilities, which, if you combine those with ballistic missiles in, in a conflict, you know that that creates quite a you know potent threat mix, creates a lot of difficulties for uh, for air defence, um, and also just massively increases the uh, the sort of the, the the number of targets that you might potentially wish to strike.
0: And We've talked about missiles being central to uh, Iran's strategic deterrent capabilities. So, what strategies are driving Iran to invest so many resources in its missile program?
2: Yes, there's quite a few. So, I mean, one is just asymmetric. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Iranian access to uh, to conventional arms have been blocked by UN arms embargoes. Um, this ran from 2007 until October 2020. Um, now, prior to this, the Iran- Iranians purchased a lot of their military equipment from uh, from Russia and from China. Um, so, lacking access to these, you know, legally procured conventional uh, equipments, um, you know, to counter its regional rivals such as Saudi Arabia, or the UAE, and in Israel. Um, it sees its missile arsenal as a means to asymmetrically project power in the region. Um, so, you know, in the event of, the, of a conflict, you know, it's obvious that Iran would strike military bases, but it might also then start striking critical national infrastructure, you know, water desalinization plants en- energy infrastructure and so on, um, like we've seen happening in uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes from Yemen, sometimes from places which are a little bit uncertain, um, in order to cause, you know, maximum disruption. Uh, and damaged adversaries in the region. And also, you know, then, of course, we see, you know, proxy power projection. Um, So just mentioning the Houthis, so, you know, Iranian-produced cruise and ballistic missiles, you know, with cruise, we've seen both the Quds 1 and the more recent variant, the Quds 2, um, which have been used by the Houthi group um, against targets in in Saudi Arabia. Um, I think everyone's familiar with the 2019 Saudi Aramco attack, which severely disrupted Saudi oil exports, drove the price of oil up. Um, you know, this, is, this has been ongoing since then. It's never really let up. Um, they haven't had a success that's as spectacular as that, but, they've, they've, you know, the Houthis have certainly been trying. Um, you know, it's, it's important to say that Iran denies that it is supplying this missile technology. Um, but, you know, I think you look at independent experts, such as the UN panel of experts on Yemen, and, you know, when you see a big, essentially, made in Iran stamp inside of a missile casing, it's, it's quite clear where it comes from. Um, you know, other reasons quickly, anti-access area denial. Um, you know, in the event of a, in the event of a conflict, Iran would want to uh, you know keep keep everyone at as, as arms length as much as possible, especially in the Gulf of Hormuz. Um, you know, this is a critical choke point for global oil supplies. And, and as a reference, I mean, what we've seen um, with the Suez Canal when you when there's a glo- uh, an area of uh, you know that's of importance to global trade it gets cut off, you know, the ramifications, economic and so on, can be can be really quite significant. So I think Iran knows that that's you know it knows it's such an important waterway. And it knows that if it did come to a uh, to a regional fight, it would certainly make things very difficult for any oil supplies traveling through there. And, and finally, just like I briefly mentioned about missile defenses as well earlier, and Iran's doing it to overcome them. Um, you know, some of Iran's regional rivals have have produced, have purchased, sorry, um, some pretty advanced missile defenses, both uh, from the United from the United States mostly. So this is all part of an Iranian strategy of creating a threat mix to overcome those in the event of a conflict. So if you've got things that are flying. You know, ten meters. You know, in the terminal phase, at ten meters above uh, above the ground, but then also coming in at you know Mach fifteen as a ballistic missile would, it makes the air defenses really, really difficult, and uh, you know probably increases your chances of striking something.
1: John, yeah, just to jump in on what what Tim was saying, I, I agree with everything he said, and I think from the Iranian perspective, all of these things tie back to the idea of being able to deter attacks um, by having this capability, um, and. The history, history for Iran and Iran's missile program, I think, is super, super important here um, because the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988 was when Iran first started its ballistic missile program. And it started it because um, Iranians needed a way to respond to uh, Iraq's attacks against Iranian cities. Um, and so that sent Iran running in search of missiles that it could launch back um, and it eventually got Scud-B missiles from Libya and then later from North Korea. The Iranian experience from the war um, taught them the lesson that if we have this capability, if we can respond in kind uh, to an attack against us, then we will be able to effectively deter that attack in the future. So we need to d- demonstrate this capability so that we can prevent others from attacking against us.
0: Keeping what you just said, John, and your, your very comprehensive answer, um, Tim, in mind, how realistic is it to expect Iran to limit its ballistic missile program, considering how central it is to its deterrence posture?
2: I I don't think it's realistic at all. Um, I mean, mean, just, you know, for the reasons outlined above, it's just not going to give it up. Um, You know, it it might restrict some, you know, some big caveat activities, um, but I I really doubt it's going to do anything really quite drastic. And, you know, when when something on what John was discussing earlier, um, you know, about US priorities, I mean, you see, often you know, how the United States says says that missile defense is absolutely non-negotiable. And when it comes to arms control discussions with the Russians, you know, the Russians want to talk about missile defense. The Americans just say absolutely not. Um, and when it came to you know renegotiating the New START treaty uh, this year, um, you know, the, the Russians were again saying we want to talk about missile defense. And uh, the U.S. Uh, the, uh, the the chap Marshall Billingsley, who was uh, who was tasked with negotiations, he he said at the Hudson Institute. That they would, the Russians would have to make such a fantastic offer, I can't even imagine what it would possibly be. And you know, in the same in the same way that the Americans just absolutely would not go into discussion about limiting or scrapping missile defenses, I, I think you're just going to have to make a parallel, and the Iranians are just likewise not going to consider, you know, scrapping or, or placing even quite you know drastic limits on their on their offensive capabilities. You know, as as John pointed out, you know, it's it's it's, it's their deterrent. It's, it's they you know they they ha- they don't have the conventional capabilities of their know rivals in the region so missiles to them are an incredibly important tool for for defense and 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 also for you know offense in the in the potential in a potential conflict
1: yeah i agree completely with everything tim just said i think there's maybe a possibility that iran would be willing to negotiate away capabilities that it doesn't yet have say we won't go this far um, but i think it's going to be very hard to get them to give up capabilities that they already do have Iran's missile program is not like its nuclear program. You know, Iranians don't see the nuclear program as a key piece of their defense as they do the the missile program. And actually recently, um, U.S. General McKenzie, who's the commander of Central Command, I believe, um, recently said that Iran's missiles are a cornerstone of their defense and um, or a keystone of their defense. And Iranians actually jumped on this phrase. They really like it. They say even General McKenzie recognizes the, that the missiles are a keystone of our defense. And, and that's why we're so adamant that we want to keep them. So um, I think, yeah, ne- restraining their missile program is going to be very difficult.
2: I think what John said on negotiating capabilities does not have is it, really important. I mean you might see that Iran might develop certain systems, you know, maybe with a certain range or something, just in order to create leverage. It might actually have, you know, no, um, you know, no serious intention of deploying these in large-scale numbers, but it might have then something that it can trade away at some point in negotiations. And again, you know, you can create, you know, you can look at historic parallels with this or, and even with other you know, arms, control, arms control situations where some might say that some of the, you know, exotic systems that the Russians are building are uh, they doing so in order to then make the Americans then put something on the table as well? So it, it may be part of an Iranian strategy. It may, it may be that some of the stuff they're developing, they, they're just doing it in order to sort of build leverage and potentially then, um, you know, get the Americans to uh, to to back down on, on on sanctions, perhaps.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what the impact of all of this is on the region. What are other countries in the middle east doing in response to iran's missile program.
2: I would say it's all it's all quite bad really. It's um you know it's, it's a lot of action reaction stuff. Um you know there's a lot of procuring missile defenses. Um so in, in 2019 Saudi Arabia signed a 15 billion dollar contract for 44 THAAD batteries um, with around 360 missile interceptors. And um, the UAE already has THAAD. It has Patriot PAC3 as well. And Bahrain has purchased Patriot um, Israel, of course, has the um, has very developed uh, air and missile defence uh, capabilities, um, and it's continued to develop layered air and missile defence systems like Iron Dome, Arrow 3, David Sling, and you know this this is important as well because where you see the greater normalisation of ties between Israel and some of the GCC states, you might see greater missile defence collaboration, which is being sort of shepherded by by the United States. Um, you know, as an example, the US um, recently deployed. Uh, two Iron Dome batteries to uh, to two unnamed GCC countries. Um, now Iron Dome isn't just you know it's, it's an Israeli uh, US um, development um, you know but you've seen you know five years ago that would have that would have seemed you know unbelievable to to have deployed um, an Israeli made system uh, in an Arab country and you know now that, that's happening now so you know there might be the possibility of further sales to regional states as well um, so I think that's something to, to keep an eye on. Um, you know, and all these states as well, as well as defensive stuff, are also, you know, procuring plenty of offensive stuff. So, you know, improved precision strike and ISR capabilities. You know, again, U.S. arms sale are a pretty essential element of this. Um, you know, recently the UAE purchased around 50 F-35s as well as uh, MQ-9B UAVs um, because, of a, uh, because the U.S. reinterpreted uh, the missile technology control regimes category one thresholds on, on UAVs. Um, you know many of these countries in the region also have lacms you know uae have black shaheen um, saudi arabia has storm shadow um quite a few of them also have the mgm140 ballistic missile as well so you know, there's plenty of strike capabilities as, as well and you know this i think this is all you know quite a lot of action reaction uh, and you know you you can look at parallels in europe and elsewhere to see that you know missile defense often isn't a good thing and it often leads to countries then creating more offensive capabilities so you then buy more build more defensive capabilities and on it goes until uh, until something gives.
0: So in other words, we're seeing an arms race in the Middle East?
2: I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't often actually see the words, you know, it's, it seems almost like Cold War-ish talking about arms races and we say things like action-reaction cycles, but I, th- I think essentially there is, yeah. Um, and I, I think what's really quite dangerous is that there's really no mechanisms to put the brakes on, on, on this if, if, you know, if, if things started heating up as well. Um, you know, you, you can see... Um, just in the last uh, was it a couple of years ago when an American uh, UAV was shot down in the Gulf of Hormuz mm. and then very quickly you know things start escalating and, and things did calm down but you, you can see how you know quickly things can escalate and with there's so with so many capabilities on, on both sides you know I think there's plenty of room for you know escalation dynamics for for signals being misunderstood um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there's really very good channels of communication between be that the various different actors, you know, back channels or hotlines, whatever it might be, in order to calm things down if, if things got quite serious.
0: And of course, they're working on a project that is help seeks to help alleviate this, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the, uh, the IISS uh, convening the missile dialogue initiative, which I work on with uh, my colleagues, Bastian Gigerich and uh, Douglas Barry. And, uh, the, you know, one purpose of it is to explore potential responses that policymakers uh, could pursue to increase transparency and trust. And and, you know, make track uh, make uh, track one solutions to uh, to these really quite difficult problems.
0: So let me end on a final question for each of you. Um, If you had to choose one thing that you're keeping an eye out for in your perspective in your respective fields uh, for the next year, what is the thing that you're going to be watching out for?
2: I would be quite interested to see what's happening with U.S. nuclear modernization. Um, There's a lot, there's a lot of debate in the the U.S. at the moment about the future of um, it's it's, especially if it's ICBM leg of its nuclear triad. Um, just today um politico reported that the uh, the u.s air force say they might reconsider the numbers um at the moment the us has said that they're going to replace their 400 Minuteman three icbms with 400 uh gbsds which will be the, the, the replacement um and that that number might potentially change and you know it's it's, it's really interesting um to see sort of u.s force projection to uh to, to see what what numbers they might add up on um you know and especially as you know russia's towards the you know the end of its modernization cycle, the U.S. is just beginning, and, you know, the, the S. one of the things we project is that, you know, China's SLBM, number of SLBMs, number of ICBMs, and the number of heavy bombers that it's going to have will, will increase, um, so it'd be quite interesting to to see how the U.S. decides to take its nuclear modernization forward, where Russia's, the number of Russian systems is dropping, but then the number of Chinese systems is increasing, so I, th- I think we might later this year find some more interesting uh, stuff on about that.
0: John.
1: Over the next year, I'm very interested to see um, how or whether uh, U.S. diplomacy around denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula proceeds, Um, because I know it's a big big foreign policy challenge, but it's not clear to me whether uh, we're headed in a good direction or not, or whether we're just going to be stalled until the North Koreans start launching missiles again.
0: Thank you both for this insightful conversation um, on the topic of Iran, the JCPOA and Iran's missile development programs, um, as well as those two things to watch for with regards to your specific areas of expertise in the next year. Um, I look forward to having you both back on the podcast again soon and keeping an eye out for your work in the meantime.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Maya.
0: And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WWS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the WWS website. Thank you and see you next time.